0: Well, uh, welcome to River City. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome my name's brandon i 'm one of the pastors here at River City as always it 's good to be with you guys open god 's word this morning again uh, this fall we 've been uh, studying the books in the New Testament, the books of first and second peter they're letters written by the Apostle Peter, one of the twelve disciples, uh, and written by the Apostle Peter to a church uh, living in the Roman Empire, a part of the Roman Empire, kind of in modern day Turkey and uh 1 Peter and 2 Peter are both letters to this uh group of churches that are that are in this area. And while the people that Peter is writing to is the same in both letters, the reason he's writing in, is, in the letters is different. His first letter he wrote to this group of Christians because they were facing opposition uh, to the gospel from outside of the church community, from their employers or their families or their society at whole, and they were feeling uh, oppression and opposition and ostracization uh, for, the gospel, for believing the gospel and living in light of the gospel. But second, Peter the letter that we've been studying the last four or five weeks here, 2 Peter, uh, he's writing to them because what they're experiencing is opposition to the truths of the gospel from inside the church community, from people who call themselves Christians but aren't actually followers of Jesus. And so what's happened is that false teachers have begun to infiltrate this young church and they're spreading some theologically and morally heretical teaching. And they're leading people away from the gospel and back into sin. And so we saw as we opened Second uh, Peter a few weeks ago, we saw that Peter begins his second letter by reminding us about the truths of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. When the gospel saves, it always changes us. And then he finished the second, uh, he continued on to explain why we can trust the gospel that he proclaimed to us why it's it's actually believable why it can be trusted he said that it's it's eyewitness testimony it's corroborated eyewitness testimony and that is the fulfillment of prophecies and then in chapter two the gloves come off and peter goes just full-on chuck norris on the false teachers he just like backs the dump truck up lets it out everything right What we see is that these false teachers, they're fakes. They're not followers of Jesus. They're not Christians, and they never were. And Peter highlights their wicked influence and their depraved character, which are in stark contrast with people who have actually been transformed by the gospel. And he says, these false teachers, they offer you freedom. They offer you life. They say, just live this way. It's really the best. What Peter says is they're actually just slaves to their own passions and their own desires. They have no freedom to offer. They're just slaves. Themselves, and he says their willing submission, their, their willing slavery to these corrupt desires that control them, it reveals that they're not Christians at all. They'd rejected the supremacy of Christ. They'd rejected the Master who bought them. They had rejected uh, God, and they had made themselves king. And so, in light of that teaching, Peter reminds us in chapter two about the grave condemnation of these false teachers. Chapter 2 was characterized by Peter's righteous anger towards evil men who were leading people away from Jesus and towards sin. Peter was angry. And it feels like at the end of chapter 2, he takes a deep breath. Because chapter 3, what we see is that the righteous anger he has towards these false teachers in chapter 2 is matched by his, like, pastor's heart. And his love for the people that he's writing to. Three times in the letter, will you'll see he calls them dear friends. Yes, he translates it beloved. He he like really really cares about the people that he's writing this letter to. He's he's not writing this letter to the false teachers. He's writing it about them. He knows that the false teachers aren't they don't they don't care what he has to say. They've already rejected him altogether. He's writing it to these young Christians. Who he really, really cares about. And he longs for them to be awake. He longs for them to be alert so that they might be able to stand in the truths of the gospel and not be led astray. Peter's letter's been a lot like a loving parent who's waking their kid in the morning. Uh, some kids need that gentle wake up. You know, it's like you come in, just rub them on the back. Good morning. It's time to wake up. That's chapter one, right? Chapter one is the encouraging hey, it's time to wake up. It's a beautiful day outside. Chapter 2 is the foghorn 3 inches from your ear, right? It's the hello. It's time to wake up. In chapter 3, now that everybody's awake, whether it took the gentle rub on the back or the foghorn to the ear, Peter like a father, he just it's like it's like I just imagine him just like grabbing you just by the shoulders just in a loving way and just saying, son, daughter, I love you. You need to listen. And this is really important, what I have to say. So Peter closes his final letter to these churches with one last reminder. It's a reminder about the sureness and the imminency of Jesus's return. It's a reminder about the joy or the sorrow that that day will bring. And it's a reminder that what we believe about the end always changes how we live now. What I want us to see as we wrap up our study in 2 Peter this morning is that a confident and eager expectation of the day of the Lord, it motivates us towards godliness and mission. A confident and eager expectation of the future return of Christ motivates us towards godliness and mission today. So with that in mind, let's read the passage. We'll pray. In fact, I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to read the passage because, man, I need it this morning. And we'll dive into our study. God, thank you so much for your word. Thanks that the truths of your word are timeless and timely, that they are exactly what we need always. God, thanks that your word is like a loving wake up for our hearts. God, sometimes it is gentle and sometimes it's the foghorn in our ear that we need. But God, thank you that your word is is meant so that we might know you and love you and live in light of you. Thanks that you long for our good and you long for our joy. God, and so we just come this morning. God, as so we study your word, we we need you to reveal the truths about your word to us. God, we need you to speak to us through your word. We need, like we sung about, we need you to magnify Jesus in our hearts so that our attention would be on you. God, I just, like, I just feel really distracted this morning. I need you to fill me with your spirit. God, so that like anything of value might come from our time in your word. God, open my mouth when it needs to be opened, shut it when it needs to shut. I would pray all these things for your name and for your glory and for our good. your good name, amen. Amen. Well, we are chapter 3 of Second Peter. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commands given by our Lord and our Savior through the apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they'll say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestor died, everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, God's words by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And these waters also, the words of that time, uh, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as, one, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done, it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. This day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you uh, with the wisdom that God has given him. And he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do with other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you would not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. At the center of Peter's teaching in chapter 3 is what he refers to in verse 10 as the day of the Lord. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is it's used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It refers to the day when God will bring his kingdom to bear on the earth and will exercise his kingly rule and reign once and for all. In the New Testament, it's also referred to as the day of Christ. That's because Jesus often talked about that day and his role in it. And so what Peter is referring to when he says, when he's talking about the, the day of the Lord, he's talking about the personal actual real physical return of jesus christ and the ushering in of his kingdom and his rule and his reign once and for all it seems kind of odd to call it the day of the lord right it's like a little odd tim keller explains it this way just really helpful i thought he says when it's your day when it's your birthday your wedding day your day you are at the center of attention you are the spotlight. Everything revolves around you. But on the day of the Lord, the day will be his day. It'll be the day when he is finally seen as the center of attention, when he is finally seen as the one through in whom all things were meant to revolve around. You see, what happens is all the time we live our lives as though every day is our day, that it's about us, that we are at the center, and we relate to God like that. We relate to God as though he just needs to help us or needs to serve us or we think about what he can do for us. But on the day of the Lord, everyone will realize that this world, as it's not about us, it never has and it never will be. See, the day of the Lord will be his day. Instead, on that day, we'll realize that that day and that every day is really about him. And either we missed it or we ignored it, or we flat out rejected it. But on that day, the truth of Jesus' kingly rule and reign, the truth about his sovereign majesty, it will be unmistakable, it will be unavoidable, and it will be undeniable. And on that day, there are going to be a lot of tears. And some of them will be from a just incredible joy. And some will be from utter despair. Because when the day of the Lord comes, we'll either be ready or we won't. And so Peter is writing to these young Christians and this church. And he wants them to be ready for the day of the Lord. He wants them to be ready for Jesus' return. And so, in order to be ready for that day, we need to know the truth about that day, and we need to be able to we need to stand firm in the truth of that day. It would take us way more time than we have (laughs) to go over all that the Bible teaches about the day of the Lord. If you want an interesting, really long Bible study, just Google that, right? Well, actually, don't Google that. There's some crazy stuff. Just anyways, it's real interesting, okay? Longer than we have time to study this morning. But what we do have time for this morning is what I want to do is I want to highlight four things that characterize how All of the apostles, how all of the Old Testament prophets, and how Jesus himself all talk about the day of the Lord. There are four things, I think, that characterize how all of them talk about the day of the Lord and what they teach. Um, And the very first thing that, that characterizes how the day of the Lord is taught about throughout Scripture is it's characterized by sureness. From the beginning to the end of the Bible talks about the day of the Lord in terms of absolute sureness. That day is coming, it is set by God, it is just a matter of time. Notice you read Peter's words here. There is there's no there's absolutely no sense or no tone of uncertainty in Peter's words. There's absolute confidence. It's clear as well that the confident expecting of this day of the Lord is meant to change us. Verse 11 and 12, since then everything will be destroyed this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord, as you seek to speed its coming. You see, it's meant to motivate us towards godliness and towards mission, because what we believe about the end always changes how we live now. Why, Why do kids often try to behave better around Christmas time? Because what they're told, what they believe, right, is that Santa's watching them, and how they behave affects what they'll get on Christmas. Uh, I would just, by the way, I would really strongly encourage you not uh, to use that as motivations with your kids to change their behavior, because that just reinforces, like, moralism and approval-based – that's not what you want, but that's besides the point. The point is that what you believe about the end changes how you live now. The same is true for kids who don't believe in Santa, right? Parents say, oh, they say, ah, Santa's not real. It doesn't matter how I live. Because what you believe about the end changes what you live, how you live now. The same is true about these false teachers. They had rejected the, sh- the return of Jesus And their teaching about that was the very foundation for the prideful and greedy and lust-driven behavior that we saw Peter highlight throughout chapter 2. They didn't believe Jesus was coming back. They had rejected the day of the Lord, and so they lived every day like it was about them. Verse 3 says that they're driven by their evil desires. That word again in the Greek is epitumia. It's over desires. It is consuming passions. The teaching of the Bible is clear and is consistent. Jesus is returning. The day of the Lord is coming. The question is when? That brings us to the second thing that characterizes the Bible's teaching about the day of the Lord. It's number two, one, is sure. Two, it is imminent. There is no day marked on the calendar. In fact, Jesus, Matthew 24, specifically says that no one knows that day, even the angels. So like whenever you see someone say, oh yeah, the end, the end of the world is coming on this day. You can just go ahead and just flat out ignore that because they don't know more than Jesus. Okay? That's just that's just a rule of thumb I would encourage you to go with, right? Now, the only answer to the question of when we have about the day of the Lord, the Bible only uses the word soon. That's the only word. Soon or variations. First Peter chapter four, if you remember, he says that the end of all things is near. That's pretty much four letters, basically soon, right? <laughs> Peter, quoting Jesus' own words in verse 10, he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In Isaiah chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 13 and in 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord is described as coming with the suddenness of labor pains. The idea is this, the day of the Lord is absolutely coming, and it is coming soon. It, and it's, it's imminence. And imminence is like the unknown variable, yet the sureness of a thing. It's like when you're pregnant, You know it's coming. And you kind of have this date, but that's not really true. Ask the Simmons about that right there. I had a baby a month early, right? You know it's coming. You just, you don't know exactly when. And so you need to get ready for it. You put locks on your doors because you know that people will try to break in and steal. The pregnant mom prepares for the baby um, before it's coming because she knows it's coming. You see, on the day of the Lord, there will be no do-overs. There will be no, just... Just just wait. I wasn't ready yet. You see, it's too late to lock your door when the thief is already inside. It is too late to take a birthing class once you are in labor. And it will be too late to respond to the truths about the gospel on the day of the Lord. It'll be too late. So Peter says, you must be ready now. Matthew chapter 24. It's a passage where Jesus spends the whole chapter talking about the day of the Lord. And he says, in this story, at the end of the chapter, he says, so keep watch because you don't know when the day of the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known the time of the, of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and he wouldn't have let his house been broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. In verse four, Peter says, we are in the last days. The false teacher's rejection of the, of the day of the Lord is evidence of that. Hebrews one says it this way. In the past, God's spoken to us through the prophets and our ancestors in various times and in various ways, but he says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, Jesus. You see, Jesus' first coming ushered in the last days. In God's story, there is one thing left There is one chapter left. There is one thing left on the storyline, and it's Jesus' return. That's the only thing left in the story. We are in the last chapter. We are in the last days. And since Jesus is coming, we have been in the last days, and his return is imminent. The false teachers used the slowness of the Lord's return, and they they had been waiting 40 years. They used the slowness of his return as evidence that he was never coming back. And Peter says that that view is has a problem of perspective. Verse eight, he says, "Don't forget this, for the day for the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day." I don't know if any of you have driven in a car with a three year old, uh, but I do almost every day, and any drive longer than thirty or forty <laughs> seconds or so uh, is a long drive. I hear, Papa, it, it it takes so long. It's so far away. Is the River Museum really far away? No, that's like 10 minutes from our house, okay? But to Emma, it is an eternity. She does not have perspective to understand how long something is. She has never driven the length of Illinois. If she had driven that, she would know what soul-crushing longness really is, <laughs> okay? You, man, you feel caught in a time loop when you're driving down that state, man. It is just... anyways. The false teachers, they use the slowness of the Lord's coming as evidence that he wasn't coming back. In, and Peter says that they, they think that because they don't have God's perspective. And if they did, he says in verse 9, they'd understand that the Lord, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He's not slow as some understand slowness. It's your perspective is off. He says instead, it's his
1: patience with you. feels like it's been a long time waiting
0: for his return. It had only been 40 years for these people. It's been 2,000 for us. And Peter says, the Lord is giving you time to repent. Instead of repenting from sin and turning towards Jesus, these false teachers choose to be consumed by the evil desires of their hearts. Been, they have chosen to be enslaved by whatever has mastered them. And Peter is real clear in chapter 2. That when you're condemned under sin, if you're not found in Jesus, you stand condemned. I had a friend in lacrosse. One of the things we had lots of great spiritual conversations. One of the things he always said is, that I can't believe in a God who would condemn me for not believing in Jesus. And I didn't know how to respond to him at the time. But I have long, I have often longed to have a chance to talk to him again, because what I would say is that Jesus Jesus is not the one who condemns you. He, you. You stand condemned without him. We all do. Jesus is the one who has come to rescue you. He's the hope that you have. You see, because the third thing that characterizes the Bible's teaching about the day of the Lord is judgment. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says that Jesus, when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. Malachi chapter 4 he says surely the day is coming it will burn like a furnace. All of the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and the day that day is coming and will set them on fire. In verses 5 through 7 of our passage this morning Peter basically says God created the world and so he has the right and the power to judge it. He showed that he could and that he would in the days of Noah and in verse 6 he promises that he ultimately will. He says by the same word that the heavens were made and were flooded. He says by that same word, the heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, the Bible is clear. God is the king of the universe. He is the creator and the sustainer of every atom in existence. And the root of sin, all of it is a mutinous rebellion against God as king. You see, sin is is our rejection of the good kingly rule of God. It's us saying, God, I know better than you. It's saying, I want something more than I want you. Sin is saying, you are no longer worth being in charge. I reject you.
1: Rebellion and rejection, that has consequences.
0: See, God's judgment of sin is often perceived as a bad thing and it is if you are under judgment <laughs> but God's judgment of sin is also meant to be seen as a good thing because it means that sin will not go unpunished it means that injustice will not forever be tolerated when you look at the world man when you look at the world you see you see so much pain and you see corruption and you see wickedness and it just feels like people are getting away with it doesn't it you look at the big things and you think about sex trafficking and just like the horror that that is, and the pervasiveness of it and the spread of it. And just feels like, who will be held accountable for that evil? Or you look at small things like scammers who, who are scamming the elderly out of their retirements and out of their funds, and it just feels like people just get away with it. See, we all have a sense of justice. We all want justice, and the promise of the day of the Lord is that justice will come. You and I, our court system, we are far from truly just, but God knows the hearts and minds and motives and intentions of every heart. He is the impartial judge, and he will judge justly. See, the reason that we look, the reason that we often have this negative view about the judgment of the Lord is because we want justice for others, but we don't want it for ourselves. We want the the sin of others to be punished, but we don't want ours to be. We want a God of love for us and a God of justice for someone else. But a God that loves but has no justice is not a God of love at all. If my wife was harmed by someone and I didn't care about justice, that's not love. That is indifference or hate. For God to be love, he must be just. And there must be judgment of sin. There must be a judgment of an offense against him.
1: You see, on the day of the Lord, sin will be paid for.
0: And either you and I, on that day, either you and I will pay the penalty for our sin for the rest of eternity, or we'll be found in Jesus, and he will have paid it for. You see, the day of the Lord is sure, it is imminent, it brings the judgment of sin. But lastly, the thing that characterizes how all of the Bible talks about the day of the Lord is that it brings the salvation of the righteous. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. His patience is meant to give us time for repentance. Malachi chapter 4, it began by talking about how the day of the Lord will be like a fiery oven that consumes the wicked, but it goes on. Because the next verse in Malachi chapter four says, but, those, but for those who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Jesus in Matthew 24, speaking about the faithful servant, he says, it will be good for the servant when the Lord, when the, when the master returns on that day. Peter wants us to be confidently expecting the day of the Lord, but more than that, he wants us to be eager for it justice will be served. Sin that has been committed by all people in all times will be, there will be justice. And verse 13, there will be a promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. See, on the day of the Lord, everything will be set right. All of the wrongs will be paid for and everything will be set right, intended as it should be. And God will sit on his throne and he will, he will exercise his kingly rule and reign over all things on that day. I see the wickedness of the world. I see the effects of sin in me. I see the effects of sin through me to other people. It makes me long for the rule and the reign of Jesus to come. Because when I experience the goodness of God's kingdom in part here, it's a reminder that that is just a taste. It's just a glimpse of the goodness of God's kingdom in full. You see, you need to understand this. The gospel, the promise of the gospel is past, present, and future. The gospel has saved us from the penalty of sin, so we're no longer condemned. The gospel is ongoingly saving us from the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. The gospel is making us into people who look like Jesus. But the gospel is future. Because the promise of the gospel is that we, one day we will be saved from the presence of sin altogether. One day we will be free from sin and all its effects in us and through us and in our world. And I long for that day. And the reason that you and I can long, we cannot just be confident about the day of the Lord, but we can eagerly long for it, and we can eagerly long for all things to be said right, is because Jesus came to die so that when he comes to judge sin, we are not swept away in judgment. In Christ, we have salvation. My sin is forgiven. The punishment for my mutinous rebellion has been paid. And on the day that I stand before God on his, on his day, I'll be clothed with Jesus's righteousness. Not because I earned it not because I deserve it, not because I lived well, not because I did the right things all the time, but because by God's grace, he brought about repentance in my heart and faith in the saving person and work of Jesus. You see, the good news about the gospel is not that the perfect will stand on that day. The good news about the gospel is that those, the good news about the gospel is that those who have been made perfect by Jesus will stand. There's this incredible old German hymn that got translated by John Wesley, and it speaks about the the day of the Lord in light of that truth it says this and i just love I just love the words of old hymns. they're just so good. He says, "Jesus, thy blood and righteousness are my beauty and my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Oh, let the dead now hear thy voice and bid thy ransomed ones rejoice." Their
1: beauty, this, their glorious dress. Jesus,
0: thy blood and righteousness. You see, without Christ, you and I, we stand condemned. And the only way that we can look on the day of the Lord is with fear and trepidation. But because of the gospel, we cannot just be confident about the day of the Lord, we can be eagerly
1: longing for it's coming.
0: What Peter tells us is that when we have a confident and eager expectation of that future day of the Lord, it changes us now. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. First, it motivates us towards godliness. 11, since Everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. John Piper says it this way: The world is going to burn. All the things that happen here will be laid bare, and things will be made known. it will not last. Instead, give yourselves to what will last. Give yourself to the image of Jesus. It's what Peter called us to be always increasing in throughout chapter one. In the end of chapter one, he says so that you 'll receive a rich welcome in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter wants us to be ready for the day of the Lord. Chapter 1 was all about how increasingly transformed lives are the evidence of genuine saving faith in the gospel. And I just want to just pause and just be abundantly, obnoxiously, like overly clear. Holiness and godly living does not make you ready for the day of the Lord. It shows you are ready. Because the transforming power of the gospel is what saves you, and your changed life is the evidence of that truth. So just cleaning yourself up on the outside, doing holy things, that does not make you ready for the day of the Lord. You are either ready or not ready on where your faith is found. And we show our readiness. We reveal our readiness with the trans- the ongoing transformation of our lives, because it proves the gospel's transforming power in us is taking root in our hearts. But godliness is not the only thing that a confident and eager expectation of the Lord, of the Lord produces. Throughout First Peter, his whole first letter, the message was this, right? You get to demonstrate the gospel with your lives. Your, your godly lives, your character, you live that out so that you might declare it. With your words. The way that you live, is the purpose of that is meant so that you might tell people about the why behind what you live. That you might proclaim the good news about the gospel. And so we long for Jesus' return, and we long for our friends to know his return. And so we live in light of Jesus' return. Verse 12 says, and so you live godly lives. And so do you speed his return. Do we actually change the time of the Lord's return? No, right? He has his own set time. But the, the language of it is this, right? Romans chapter 11 says that God is waiting for the full number of the Gentiles to come into salvation. There is a number of people that God is going to save and there's no way we can know it. And it is irrelevant, except that it's more than who is already saved. That's all we need to know. And that's all we will ever know. And the point of that is that we might live every day as though it is his day. That we might live every day as it is unto him. And we might live every day to his glory. That our godly lives might lead to the salvation of others as we get to declare the good news about the gospel into their lives. And So our godliness and the mission of making disciples are always intertwined. The call is not to just live godly lives separate from everything else. The call is to live godly lives who invade the world with God's kingdom, with his goodness and the transforming power of the gospel. So we live godly lives. We seek to demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel so we might declare the good news about the gospel so that others might be ready on the day of his return. Peter closes his letter and he answers the question, where do we get the power and the strength to pursue godliness and mission, not just long for it? He says, verse 18, you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the how. See, every day we are, we must pursue Jesus. We long for him more and more. And when we long for him and we know him, we long for his coming. And we are filled each day with his spirit, which empowers us not just to live for him, but to to long for him and to live for him together. Verse 18 says, I might live for his glory both now and forever. See, what you believe about the end always changes how you live. So we live each day as though it is the Lord's day. We long to live each day as though it revolves around him, as though he's the center of everything. I long for Jesus to have his day. I long for his kingdom to come. I long for his justice to come. I long for his righteousness to dwell. And I long for Jesus' return, but I am grateful for his patience.
1: Because his patience gave me
0: time to repent. And you? And his patience is giving our friends and our family and our people who don't know Jesus. Yeah, he's giving them time to repent. And so we long for Jesus' coming and we speed that day as we we live for him and as we declare him to our friends. There's this old hymn, another one I found this week. I got caught on a hymn website. Man, it was just, it was a good couple hours. I feel like it really sums up The the heart of this passage says, Christ is coming. Let creation from her groans and toil cease. Let this glorious proclamation hope restore and faith increase. Earth can now but tell the story of thy bitter cross and pain. She shall yet behold thy glory when thou comest back again. Long thy exiles. This part just really gets me. He says, long thy exiles have been pining far from rest and home in thee. But in heavenly clothing, shining, we our loving Lord shall see. With that blessed hope before us, let no harp remain unstrung. Let the mighty Advent chorus onward roll from tongue to tongue. Christ is coming. He is coming. Haste the joyous Jubilee. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly, please. As we take communion, what we remember is that the gospel is not just past. It is not just present. What we remember is that the gospel is a promise of future. What we remember is that in communion is that we remember all that Jesus did so that one day, on that day, on his day, that we would stand not in our own strength, but in his. And so we live in view of that day so that we might live in his strength today. and every day until that one comes. And so we remind ourselves about the gospel as we take communion every week because we forget all the time. We forget how much we need Jesus. We forget how greatly he has met our need and we look to other things all the time. And so we choose every week to remember. We remember that. In the bread that His body was broken for us as He lived the life that we could not live. And we remember in the drink that His blood was shed for us as He died the death that we deserve to die, that we should have died, and He did it for us in our place. And communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not change your status or your standing with Him. Communion is about remembering Him. Throughout 2 Peter, He has said, Remember. You must remember the." The gospel is the thing that changes us. The gospel is the thing that saves us. And the gospel is the thing that is our hope for the future. So the bread and the juice are in the back. You just take the bread, you dip it in the juice. And as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion and celebrate and remember all that Jesus has done for you. Remember that his gospel has saved you from the condemnation of sin, that his gospel is saving you from the power of sin every day. Remember that his gospel will save you on that day, on his day. Ask him that he might empower you to live in light of it today. You don't need to be a member here to take communion. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if Jesus is not the one whose righteousness you cling to, if he is not your hope on that day, and I would just invite you to hold off on taking communion. You need to receive him before you receive communion. He is what you need. He's what you need this day. He's what you need every day. Ask him. Ask him that he would give you what you need. Ask him that he'd give you a new heart with new desires to love him and follow him. Ask him that he would fill you with his spirit every day that you might live for him.
1: To him be the glory
0: now and forever. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are coming back. And the truth about that gives me great joy. God, I long for your return. God, I long. I long to be free of sin in my own heart. I long to, for this world to be free of the effects of sin. God, I long for your kingly rule
1: and reign. It's good news.
0: God, and so we pray, come quickly. God, and empower us as your people to live every day now and forever. That's about you. God, don't let us wait until your day, until the day of the Lord to start living for you and to start seeing this everything is about you. God, cause us to live that way now. Cause us to experience the joy of your kingdom now in part so that we might long for its coming in full one day. God, thank you that the gospel is good news. It's good news to us. Thank you that you are patient, giving us time to repent. God, we long that you would increasingly make us look more like Jesus and that our friends that don't know you yet, that they might come to repentance and faith in you so that they might be ready on your day. God, as your people, cause us to live now and
1: forever for your glory and your name. Amen.